the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, so glad to have you with us today. One of the things we talk about often on The Common Good, because I think this is an evergreen topic that especially with each generation, we're going to need to deal with more and more and more and more, and that is social media, right? I believe social media is a wonderful tool, it's a wonderful thing that is now uh, still kind of new to our culture. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, all of these things uh, are good things, but they can also be dangerous things. And I wonder if we don't spend enough time considering what are the boundaries that I need or what? how do I go into dealing with things like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram? How do I have open eyes to know what's going on. And with that in mind, there were some internal Facebook documents that came out recently. It seems like Facebook is the one that's really in the crosshairs right now. It's really in the news. There was the whistleblower uh, a, a couple weeks ago, kind of opening the door, shining a light on what's going on at Facebook uh, and who they are. And, and it's just this idea of what do we need to know about Facebook? So there was a uh, kind of their the the initial. I watch the Today Show every day. I've told you guys that before. Well, uh, there, it's always interesting to go. What's the first um, segment of the show? And the first segment today was the Alec Baldwin shooting. What a tragedy uh, on that movie set. But I believe it was second in the rundown was Facebook and these internal documents. And so we're not going to listen to the whole interview on Today Show, but I want you to hear some of it. Listen to this. Facebook's internal research shows that for years, the company has studied practically every social ill that plagues its platform, from human trafficking to threats of violence. And Facebook appears to be at war with itself as to what should be done, as some of its researchers loudly sound the alarm. They are making dramatic recommendations about changes to the company, but it doesn't seem as if the company has changed. Why is that? We do listen to the researchers, and first, the fundamental question is, why would you have a research team in the first place? We have those researchers, and we've built a team now of more than a 1,000 individuals, most of them with PhDs, who work on researching the experience that people have around our products and our different features for only one reason, and that's to make those products and features better. But researchers post internal messages with titles like Does Facebook Reward Outrage? Carol's Journey to QAnon? And We Are Responsible for Viral Content. Study found that when we post misinformation, it's more likely to be shared. And that can lead to real-world harm. Another study found that for some politicians and news outlets, Facebook's sharing system is leading them to post more divisive and sensationalist content. And the specifics of what some researchers say internally doesn't always match up with the image the company has projected. All right. So some Facebook documents are revealing uh, the the work. And, and it's interesting because on the one hand, 
you are excited that Facebook is, uh, they've got these PhDs and these researchers trying to ask the question, how do we uh, root out misinformation? How do we root out uh, being a platform that not just has misinformation, but in some ways encourages misinformation. Many people, when they look at the insurrection that happened on January the 6th at the Capitol, they place some blame on places like Facebook and other uh, sites that were allowing certain content on there. Also stuff about the election and COVID and all of this stuff. And so people are starting or continuing to ask the hard questions. What about the misinformation? But the way this report continues is to say their frustrations internally is that oftentimes when this information gets to the real decision makers and they go, well, what are we going to do with this information? Uh, it, it, it gets kind of sidelined instead for the ideas of what's going to give us the greatest amount of engagement because the greatest amount of engagement brings us the most amount of advertising money. And so there is this um, butting of the heads of, of um Two different priorities here and that oftentimes what's winning out, these people are saying, is Facebook's desire to make as much money as possible. And one of the ways they make money is through misinformation. So what do we do with this, particularly as Christ followers? And why would you ask particularly as Christ followers? Well, here's why. For us as Christians, the bar for us to deal with to deal in what is actually true I believe is higher. We are people of the truth. And if we deal in misinformation, if we are people who don't do our homework, or maybe we do do our homework, but still use misinformation in order to push an agenda that we might have. Uh, if we are the people who do that and people are going, wait a minute, no, no, that's false. That's wrong. That's untrue. Then when we speak of things like the gospel, when we think of when we speak of things of Jesus, of the Bible, those same people are going to say to us, well, if I can't trust what you posted about the election, if I can't trust what you posted about covid vaccines or about whatever else it might be about climate change, whatever side of the aisle you're on, if I can't. If I can't trust what you're posting there, then why would I ever trust what you're saying about eternity, about sin, about the gospel, and about Jesus? See, this matters. We as Christians need to be people of the truth. We need to be people who are peddling in truth rather than trying to win arguments through things that might be misinformation. And friends, this is an enormous deal. I, I often point you uh, to the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, when you watch that, you realize how much misinformation is forming us, particularly through our social media outlets, but also cable news and other places. And I would I would be remiss to say if I didn't say that both sides of the aisles peddle in misinformation. Uh, neither the Republicans nor the Democrats have cornered the market on misinformation. But what happens is we start to believe these things. We start to share these things and we don't do the work of figuring this out. We have to remember Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Fox News, MSNBC, all of these things are for profit entities. They ultimately are trying to make as much money as possible. And one of the ways that they have figured out to do that is through things that are not true, through misinformation, or probably more accurately, through things that are kind of true. 
that have a kernel of truth, but then have been taken the wrong way. Friends, these internal documents, I think, at Facebook uh, are scary. I think they should cause us pause and remind us of what's really going on out there as we're on Facebook, as we're on Twitter and other places. So give it a read and do your homework and let's, as Christians, be people of the truth. Let's have that bar be really high. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk to a friend of ours, Bob Smetana. He is a veteran religion writer at the Religion News Service, national reporter there. Going to talk to Bob about a bunch of different things, one of which I want to ask him about is the story of Sarah Davis, the daughter of Ravi Zacharias, starting a new ministry, and wonder, when is it okay for people from uh, disgraced ministries to begin new ministries again. We're going to have that conversation and many other things with Bob Smetana next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, so glad to have you with us today. Uh, And we are thrilled to be joined by one of the friends of the show. He's a veteran religion writer and national reporter for Religion News Service. His name is Bob Smetana. Bob, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? Really good. Really glad to have you with us again. Hey, I know you're on often. A lot of people probably recognize your voice. But for those who are just tuning in and don't know you, uh, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit more fully so our people can get to know you a little bit? Sure. I'm a religion reporter. I work for Religion News. Service, which is uh, a non-sectarian, non-profit uh, religious agency that covers all news agency that covers all faith. Uh, I've been doing this for 22 years, just as of this year. Wow! And so we cover. I write a lot about evangelicals. But I write about all faith, and uh, the nice part is that I tell people we talk to people about God all day long, and we don't have to win, which is kind of nice. <laughs> so people. We get to listen, so that's, that's a little bit of what we do. We don't do that enough these days in our culture. I, I, yeah. I, this isn't where I said I'd start, but I'm wondering, 22 years in kind of the religion news uh, arena, uh, what's, it seems like a lot has probably changed. How is it different? Uh, and I don't mean like, well, a lot of internet versus this, but just fundamentally, like with the things you're reporting and talking about, how is it different and what are the things that are constant? Gosh, that's a good question. It, the speed is different for sure, right? Yeah. So you just you, when I call someone, I say, they say, "What's your deadline?" And I want to say, half an hour ago. So that's different. I think. <laughs> I think um, you know some of the things that are common. There are the abuse stuff has been common. Mm. I think some of the um, controversies have been common. I think some of the really good work folks do. It seems to be harder now to get people to pay attention when you write a story. That's not about conflict, and I think maybe mm-hmm. that has something to do with the, the algorithms on social media. It's harder to connect with people on a story that uh, that shows how people practice their faith, but it's not driven by conflict. And then I think the conflict has gone up. I think as the country has changed, yeah. uh, ethnically, has, socially has changed, politically has changed, economically uh, has changed in how we view sexuality. That has prompted more conflict. Yes, yes. That's interesting. Over all those years, uh, how much changes and how much stays the same. You wrote an article recently about Sarah Davis. She's the CEO of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, or was the CEO. 
But also a complicating matter. She's the eldest daughter of Ravi Zacharias. And uh, she announced recently uh, that she's going to start a new ministry, kind of a new apologetics ministry. And it's got a lot of people talking like, is this right? Because she didn't do this stuff. It was her dad, but she was part of the organization. Um, and critics that you write here in the headline worry that it's Ravi Zacharias Ministries 2.0. Um, I, I guess help us understand more the nuance of the story. What are people why do some people have a problem with this? Well, the, the problem, so part of the problem is that we still don't know all that happened at Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, which we often call RZIM. Mm-hmm. You know, Sarah Davis is on the, we don't know who's on the board still. Most of the board members are anonymous. There was a review done of the culture there and the handling of abuse, of, of kind of misconduct by Zacharias that has not been made public. It's not sure if it ever been made public. Uh, there were they were um, so that's one part. We don't know exactly what happened there. Right. Has they been transparent about what happened? And the second part is that there were some promises made by leadership that that our RZIM would not do apologetics anymore. Um, that would become a grant making making group, and so there's some concern that maybe RZIM won't do apologetics, but it will morph into a new group that will do apologetics, mm-hmm. and the money. You know, then and grant money from RZIM will go to this new group, and so it will start over. And there's questions whether that's appropriate, whether that's going back on their promises, whether the folks who are going to be in charge of this new ministry, which you know, who had close ties to RZIM, whether they should be in the apologetic business. You know, does does yeah. their does their past behavior undermine their ability to talk about and share the faith? Yeah. Yeah, it's just interesting. Again, that's Sarah Davis, daughter of Ravi Zacharias. Uh, you can find uh, Bob's article up at religionnews.com. And let me broaden it out there because that's, you know, that's a specific story about a daughter and how that works. But in general, you said over your 22 years, lots of reporting on abuse scandals. Unfortunately, that always happens in the church, kind of parachurch ministries or what have you. Uh, do you, what do you, um, what do you believe, but also what do you hear most commonly from people about when it is appropriate for somebody to step back into church ministry, step back into speaking after there's been a fall? What, how do we wrestle with that as a church? Oh, that's a very, that's a good question. There are lots of, there are lots of viewpoints. There are viewpoints that say, um, that people are permanently disqualified from ministry, uh, if they have, especially an abusive pattern of behavior, there are other folks who want to um, say that, well, they they could be restored. There are some programs that take people, you know, this is one place where denominations can be helpful, yeah. or other groups that say, we're going to take you through a long-term process of really dealing with what people did, and then secondly, what they um what were the patterns in their life that brought them to the place where they're abusive? I do know some folks who have, um, particularly if they've had um, relationships outside of marriage that have been uh, caused them to be leave the pulpit, um, and those are always complicated because you know if a pastor, this is one thing that actually is new. Uh, I think people are beginning to see that if a minister is having a relationship, sexual relationship with someone in their congregation, that is not just adultery, it's also an abuse of power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's very new. And so people are kind of grappling with, okay, what does that mean? And how do we, you know, what at what point do people, can people, I think there's a lot of 
thought that people can be part of a church um, and in some kind of ministry, but not be the leader yeah. anymore. Yeah. And I think that's the that's a hard process. I think what happens is people rush back too fast, and then they have another problem. So it's not a simple. Uh, it's not simple. I think there are um, there are some folks who take people through a long term process. You know, there are a couple churches that do this that that say we're going to. Uh, I think if there's a Darren Patrick is a pastor that comes to mind mm-hmm. who died uh, in, um, several years ago, but he had had uh, problems of being kind of an abusive leader. Not abusive and sexually abusive, right, but right. Um, angry and um, not a good leader, had been fired by his church, went through a long process of uh, recovery, and then went back into ministry. So there are cases like that. Um, there are, there, you know, there are, course, the question is, how much have you betrayed of your trust? And can you, what can you do to show that you've earned that back? Yeah, yeah. That's a, <laughs> that is the $64,000 question. We see all sorts of examples, even in our own backyard, whether it be, you know, Bill Hybels mm-hmm. or James McDonald, or we're all listening to the Mark Driscoll podcast. It's it's all across yeah. the board. We're thrilled to be joined again by veteran religion writer and national reporter for the Religion News Service. His name is Bob Smetana. You have necessarily had to write a lot about the Southern Baptist Convention uh, recently. We had you on, uh, you know, a couple months ago to talk about it. But could you just catch us up? And I know this is difficult to do because it's almost like a soap opera. Catch us up with where things are at right now with Southern Baptist Convention and their leadership, and a little bit of a void of leadership in some level. Yeah. So a couple things are happening. So the, so this um, probably folks know that in 2019 there was a big report uh, from the Houston Chronicle about abuse in local churches, and that got a lot of attention. That led to a lot of uh, changes in the SBC, I think, to how do we care for people who are abuse survivors better, uh, what role have we played in not being proactive. Um, that So that led to a, a, lot of, a public lament and some changes. But now if you are a church and you have covered up abuse, you can be thrown out of the convention. Um, that The the spotlight now has turned to leaders in the convention and did leaders at uh, what's called the executive committee, which is the national offices of the convention that runs things, the business of the convention during when they, when they're we're not having their annual meeting, the annual meeting for them is their highest decision-making body. They have an, they have a basically administrative office mm. and there've been questions and, and that administrative office in the past has, been leaders that have been pretty reluctant to do anything proactive. So back in 2007, 2008, they were asked to set up a, a database to track if they're abusive pastors, so that churches would know this pastor has, a, you know, has been either accused of abuse or convicted, and the the leaders there turned it down. So um, it, now, in this past year, the uh, the members of the convention they were concerned about how how their leadership responded to abuse survivors. So they're doing an investigation, and there was a fight over that investigation. The, the executive committee wanted to do, investigate themselves the, in kind of a pretty uh, strong uh, show of opposition. The messengers, the convention, which is local church folks, said, no, we want to set up an independent investigation. Well, that was set up by the executive committee. One of the, the parts uh, that was contentious was about confidentiality. So... Mm-hmm. The uh, investigators wanted to see basically conversations between 
staff and on the issue of abuse, even if it included conversations with legal counsel. And so they wanted to waive the, the committee to waive that privilege and not to say, mm-hmm. well, you can't see these things because our, they're, they're confidential with our lawyers. And uh, that's what the committee was a big fight over that. They eventually decided after some people quit to um, waive confidentiality. Yeah. So that, that abuse, you know, and it's, this is mostly, this is not whether or not people in the committee abused folks. It's really how do they respond when they learn about abuse? How do right. they treat survivors? There's been a, a number of stories about survivors being mistreated or treated with callously. So it, it strikes a bigger problem, though, in the SDC um, that almost every denomination the U.S. is facing, and that is it's a very polarized, divided time. Yeah. And so there are, um, you know, in the SBC, there are folks who, you know, you're talking about all folks who are very, very conservative. But, you know, but they are divided over politics. They're divided over how to deal with race. They're divided over how to uh, evangelize more. They're divided over who should be president. They're divided over um, how the, how they should, treat each other in the public. Yeah. And that has, that's going on. So there have been a number of high profile leaders who've left. So the head of the executive committee, this megachurch pastor named Ronnie Floyd, he left over the abuse investigation and the decision the committee made. Um, the head of their mission board left a couple of years ago after having to fire some missionaries for, um, they had budget problems. The previous head of the executive committee left because of some inappropriate conduct. Mm. Um, so they've had this kind of, and then Russell Moore, their ethicist was left after years of conflict. So they, they've had a whole series of leaders leave uh, either in controversy, either because they, and then Paige Patterson, who's kind of an SBC legend, was fired from his seminary for mishandling of these That's allegations. Right. So there's, they've had a series of leaders leave, and so it made people ask, well, who could be in charge of this, and who would want to be in charge of it? Yeah. And I think this is like, this is the, the, there are a couple things going on. There's an identity question. Who are, who are the Southern Baptists? Are they mostly Southern and Baptist or are they more broadly evangelical? Are they Republican and non-Republican? They're fighting over critical race theory. They're fighting over the role that people of color have in the denomination. So, you know, the SBC was founded during the Civil War by slaveholders who, uh, um, they're slaveholding Christians. They were part of the, the, the SEC is really in the, grew up in the heart of Jim Crow country. They have really repented of that, but now they have leaders who are people of color who say, well, we need to address some of the issues in our culture now about racism, more kind of underlying systemic issues. Mm. And that's caused a backlash. Yeah. So, there, you know, this is um, every, I think every religious group in the country right now has to deal with the fact that the world that they grew up in has changed, right? Yeah. The world we grew up in, if, I, I don't know, I was born in 65, so I'm 56. At that time, the country was still mostly white, mostly Christian. It is, you know, in the, when my kids, my grandkids are born, I think in a few years, if I have grandkids, they'll be, their peers will not be mostly white, and the country will not, will be less Christian. So, and a lot of the ideals and kind of, mores and what was normal in the past is not the future. So how do, how do groups deal with this transition to this new world they're in? It's yeah. a long answer. But That's really good. That's helpful. That lots of folks are, are trying to make. How do, and then if you have, 
you know, all this, all this, all these kinds of crises will stress even the best leaders. That's if you right. have leaders that fail, then it makes things worse. So, uh, and then if the churches shrink, people end up turning on each other. Right. Whose fault is this? Right. How do we go forward? And so there's not, um, and then social media makes it, makes it just throws fuels on the fire yeah. because people, it, it rewards people who are, uh, it rewards conflict with views. Yeah. That's, that's a great synopsis. And I guess, uh, this is this a hard question to, to answer. I never thought there would be a day, right, where um, Russell Moore, Beth Moore, Tim Keller, David Platt, Ed Stetzer are being called woke and progressive, right? Like there seems to be this weird thing going on. And, and that highlights what you said about like just the growing divide, the polarization. And here's the difficult question. Do you think we have only tipped the iceberg here? This is the tip of the iceberg. Like this is just who we are as churches and evangelicalism for now. Or is there an answer? What do, what do you see as kind of looking down the road here? Well, that's a good question. There's, there's, there's some, you know, change is hard for folks. And so it may be that we're, I think we're still in the middle of uh, some very difficult times. I'm actually working on a whole book about this, there you go. this idea. But there are lots of things going on, and I think, um, I don't know if we're just a tip. I don't think it's going away any anytime soon. I think the country is in a bit of an identity crisis mm-hmm. and that is hard and how do you how do you well, how do you deal with, with the changing world if your institution was built to serve a certain group of people and now that whole world has changed how do you do that and how do you preserve that because i think there are folks who say well if the church is closed it doesn't matter mm. if religion declines it doesn't matter and i think one of the things we forget is that religious institutions like churches do do all kinds of social good. Right? Yeah. They help people. They show up if someone dies. They educate people. They're the kind of last resort. Uh, shelters and you know, if there's a disaster, they show up. They do food pantries. And so, if all that disappeared, that would be problematic, right? Mm-hmm. We, we would all lose something. There's nothing. There's nothing like churches because churches or other religious groups they gather on a regular basis. They give people. Um, teaching about how to make be a better person, make the world a better place, and then they send them out to go do good in the world, yeah. and they collect money to help that. Well, there's no other social group in our country that fills that niche. Mm. So I think I don't think people think enough about what are the what's the long term thing going on here, and what are the changes, and how do we build a sustainable organization for now and the future. And so if you, it's like is the, if the ship is going down, you're, you're focused on how do you fix the ship? Um, there are kind of second-level issues yeah. that you may fall on, but if things are going wrong, you want to say, wait, this is going wrong. We better be going right. the right way. That's right. And something is wrong. If the house is on fire, you're not going to argue about, uh, you're not going to argue with someone over some other issue because the house is on fire. Sure. So it seems like in the religious landscape, the, in some ways the house is on fire and, there's a how do you put out the fire? How do you build for a future? And how do you keep the institution going? Uh, because we have this real, real, you know, I know I'm talking a lot, but we have a real difference between younger Americans and older Americans. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we always older and younger people always are different, you know, in some of their ideas. So we have now other kinds of generational changes, especially on ethnicity. For sure. Uh, mostly, we're going from a mostly white, mostly Christian, kind of uh, complementarian 
world in which that which uh, marriage was men and women, yeah, and sexuality and gender was in the, and and people had jobs to keep for a long time, and we have a whole new world in which you know it's more egalitarian, it's different on sexuality, uh, where most people are not white, where the people who are Christian, if you're going to be Christian, you are more you're just as likely to be a person of color than a person who is white. That's the past that was not the same. So people who are going to be religious are much more diverse. And so, and then, you know, technology has changed and we have economic uncertainty. And so we have a whole group of people who are younger who are going to want churches and religious institutions to act differently and address yeah. different questions. Yeah. But those, those institutions and churches are funded mostly by older <laughs> folks yeah. who poured their lives into it. And, and so how do you, and have led it, and how do you make that transition without blowing everything up? Man, that's I, a very difficult question. I, I think that's the question we're all facing going forward. That was a great synopsis. Again, Bob Smetana, veteran religion writer and national reporter for the Religion News Service. You can check out Bob's articles at religionnews.com. You can also connect with them on Twitter at Bob Smetana. That's at Bob Smetana. Bob, we always appreciate you, man. Thanks for coming on today. Oh. Great to be there. Thanks so much for letting me uh, talk. Uh, Our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. AIM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. You can always tell what the important articles or the important, um, you know, blogs or podcasts are by what people begin to share. And I kept seeing this one particular article out of the Atlantic. It's written uh, by Peter Werner, uh, and he asks basically this question. Uh, he He says that the evangelical church is breaking apart. And Peter Werner says Christians must reclaim Jesus from his church. So it's a very difficult, long article that's trying to say, in his opinion, that the evangelical church is being torn apart, and it's being torn apart from the inside. He is not saying that, oh, it's, uh, it's this, it's, the, uh, it's this political party on the outside, or it's these. Now, there are constant cultural pressures that are affecting the evangelical church, but Peter Werner's uh, hypothesis here at The Atlantic is that the evangelical church is being torn apart from the inside by many things uh, that are non-biblical and non-Jesus. So here's an important uh, paragraph that he writes. He says, The aggressive, disruptive, and unforgiving mindset that characterizes so much of our politics has found a home in many American churches. As a person of the Christian faith who has spent most of my adult life, he writes, attending evangelical churches, I wanted to understand the splintering of churches, communities, and relationships. So I reached out to dozens of pastors, theologians, academics, and historians, as well as a seminary president and people involved in in campus ministry. He says this, all voiced concern. The coronavirus pandemic, of course, has placed religious communities under extraordinary strain. uh, Everyone in America has felt its effects. For many Christians, it's been a bar to gathering and to worshiping together. 
uh, not being in community destabilizes the core sense of Christian identity. So he lays that uh, from the pandemic. He says, hey, we haven't been together. Many of us haven't been together, so it's begun splintering. But he says, but there's more to the fractures than just COVID-19. After all, many of the forces that are splitting churches were in motion well before the pandemic hit. The pandemic exposed and exacerbated weaknesses and vulnerabilities, habits of mind and heart that already existed. The root of the discord lies in the fact that many Christians have embraced the worst aspects of our culture and our politics. There is the important thing that he says that the pandemic exacerbated, and we're barely going to hit the tip of the iceberg on this article. I'd encourage you to go get it at the Atlantic. It is super long, so have some time to read it, uh, but well worth your time. Uh, But he basically says this, uh, we as Christians have embraced the worst of our politics, the worst of our culture, the worst of our social media, the worst of everything, and that in many ways we have become, we have outpaced our culture in anger, in cancel culture, in unforgiveness, and in bubbling ourselves off and and to the polls, to people that aren't like us. We're like, I'm done with them, even within our churches. And the hard part about that is what we know biblically is that the church is meant to be unified, not in our politics, not in what we think about masks, uh, not in our economics, not in our race, but instead the church is meant to be unified under the umbrella of Jesus Christ, our thankfulness and our awe of the gospel, that that is what unifies us. Jesus himself praise this in John 17, and that our churches are to be full of Democrats and Republicans. Our churches are to be full of uh, black and white, male and female, rich and poor, uh, vaccinated and unvaccinated, masks and anti-masks, whatever else, however else you want to look at this, that's what our churches are supposed to look like. But Werner here, and I think he's right, says that what has been going on over time and now seems to be getting uh, faster and faster is that our churches are just becoming echo chambers for those who vote like us, those who look like us, and now those that believe like us about everything about this pandemic, whether it be masks or vaccines or whatever else it might be. And the church has ceased to look like what Jesus prayed it would look like in John 17. And the church has ceased to look like what Paul talks about uh, in his writings about neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, rich or poor, slave or free. But instead, this now the church just has begun to look like our social media echo chambers and the other echo chambers, our, po- our political parties and whatever else it might be. He says that there's countless acts of kindness, generosity, and self-giving love are performed every day by people precisely because they are Christians. Their lives have been changed. He says, but I can recognize that while also recognizing the wreckage around us. He says there's lots of good. I always don't like when people just say the church, everything's bad about it. It's not. It's not. The church is regularly the hands and feet of Jesus. The church is out there helping the least of these and those who are hurting. We see it every day. But Werner's point is there are really disturbing cracks in the foundation. He says something has gone amiss. Pastors know it as well as anyone and better than most. The Jesus of the gospel, the Jesus who won their hearts and who long ago won mine, needs to be reclaimed. There needs to be a a reckoning. There needs to be, in many ways, a reformation. 
in the evangelical church that says, no, I am going to be all things Jesus, even when that doesn't agree with my political party, uh, even when that doesn't agree with um, you know my economics, uh, even when that makes me feel uncomfortable. And friends, we've seen this going, but the pandemic has just um, poured gasoline on the fire. And the question out there, Christian, Christ follower, is what are we as individuals going to do about it? Because as we as individuals change our practice, then that begins to catch hold. That becomes the, what the church is, and, and things begin to move. But as we are just in our social media bubbles and echo chambers, as we are just watching with our cable news people, as we are only with people who vote like us and think like us and look like us, then heaven help us, we're no longer the church that Jesus described in John chapter 17 that Paul describes that we see throughout scripture. And let me close by reminding us that the book of Revelation says that we eternity will be spent with every tribe, tongue, and nation, people that do not look like us, talk like us, even in many ways believe exactly like us. And that's the beauty of heaven. So let's begin living that out now under the lordship of Jesus Christ, living as he has called us to live. This article is hard to read. It's at The Atlantic. Uh, about the tearing apart of the evangelical church by Peter Warner. Give it a read. Coming up next, director of communications for Pure Flix and the author of many books, including Playing with Fire, a modern investigation into demons, exorcism, and ghosts. His name is Billy Hollowell. He's going to come on and join us as we talk about Halloween. How do we as Christians think about it? How do we celebrate it with our kids this weekend? We're going to do that next with Billy Hollowell here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. And I'm thrilled to be joined on the phone uh, by Billy Hollowell. Billy is the Director of Communications for Pure Flix, also the author of some books, the most recent, Playing with Fire, A Modern Investigation into Demons, Exorcism, and Ghosts. Billy, it's so good to have you on, man. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Hey, before we jump into all that we want to talk to you about, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better? Sure. Yeah. So I am, I'm a journalist. I'm an author and I've been working in media now. It's kind of crazy for a really long time. I'm I'm 38 (laughs) and I started, I started when I was 15, which I know sounds crazy. Um, I was involved in some media projects as a teenager that actually grew into professional journalism. So it's been a pretty amazing uh, journey. In the last probably, gosh, about 10 years, I've been working. I was the faith editor of The Blaze, you know, for about uh, five and a half years. Mm-hmm. Then I was at Faith Wire. And then I spent a long time at Pure Flix um, in Christian Entertainment. So I've kind of worked my way through different elements of the media space, and I'm actually rejoining the CBN News and Faithwire family again, uh, which is really exciting. So I've, I've really great. had a chance to work on about 14,000 stories over the years, which has been crazy. Wow. Uh, I'm going to tell my teenage kids, like, you know, let's start getting to work here. Age of 15. That's something. <laughs> uh, so so we're going we're gonna to talk to them about that. Hey, Billy, the reason I wanted to have you on is uh, you talk a lot about, like, you know, the supernatural, and you talk a lot about the end times and just um, we got Halloween coming up. As I said, I've got kids. Halloween's always a big deal. But I know as a pastor, I'm also a pastor, uh, people in the church, they always kind of wrestle with like, 
Is Halloween okay? Like, what do we do with Halloween? I guess I wanted to ask you just your thoughts on Halloween for Christians. And also, maybe are there any things we should be thinking about or dangers that we should be considering? Look at you trying to get me in trouble. No, I, I love this. I think it's um, it's the one topic. You know, there's certain things that in the Christian space, when you talk about them, the rapture, right? That's right. one of the most controversial things around. Um, and a lot of people treat things as though they are salvation issues when they're not. There are just theological disagreements. There's the core of Christianity, which you know as a pastor, yeah. um, which is not something that we negotiate on. But these other things, you know, there, there are debates around, and Halloween is one of them. And as you know, a journalist who's covered the issue a lot, even when, we, when I've gone out of my way to sort of cover both sides of the Halloween debate, people get really frustrated, really upset. Mm. Why would you even consider you know, celebrating it? And I think for me, I'm all about, and people can disagree with this, trying to take things back, right? You know, when something has become or when it's rooted in something that is negative, you know, in, in our house, the way that we handle Halloween is that we don't address any of the evil portions of it. We don't allow the kids to dress up as things that would be bloody or evil. Mm. And, you know, we just spend time, we have a little family party every Halloween, and then the kids might do a little trick-or-treating in our immediate neighborhood, but we're very, very cognizant and careful to also explain to the kids what Halloween is actually about for a lot of people, that it is about evil for many people, and that evil is celebrated and that there are roots to this holiday. Now, I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old. My nine-year-old understands some of this, and you have to make it age-appropriate. So that's where I fall on it, because here—and I'll just say this, and this is the part that might annoy some people—I think harvest festivals are great. I think you have to go with what your conviction is. If Mm -hmm. you feel like you shouldn't celebrate it, then you shouldn't at all. But even holding an event on Halloween at church, whether you call it something different or not, it's still a form of observing Halloween. And I think that's a that's a hard thing for yeah. So I'm 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 on board with that. I think that's great. I'm sort of in the middle of trying to find my own way to do that separate thing while still not really ignoring the day. If that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And uh, man, it sounds like you can speak to this. some people might not really know the roots or the to kind of the background and. Um, could you give us a kind of a Reader's Digest version of what are some of the roots that you think are important to keep in mind and maybe talk to our kids about? No, absolutely. I mean, this goes back to the Celts, and this is a 2,000-year-old know, tradition that really it was about this new year that they would celebrate on November 1st, and the day before they believed that spirits would come back, that the dead, the lines would blur between the dead and the living, and they would hold these festivals where they would dress up in costumes, and they would tell each other's fortunes. And so all of these things, you know, bells and whistles and lights go off, because these are things that Christians should not be engaging in, fortune-telling and psychics and all these things. But there's this whole 2,000-year-old history where these people really believe they were able to, because of the quote-unquote deceased people who were coming back, they believe this was happening, that they were given these extra abilities and would hold these festivals, and then around the 11th century, um, you know, Christians sort of, you know, took this over to a degree and tried to and tried to make it All Saints Day, um, and really tried to take it back. But a lot of the traditions persisted and carried on, um, and many of those traditions obviously carry on today as well. In America, it's much more commercial. Kids are going around and they're getting candy, but dressing up in costumes, you know, some of these things, they do go back to that. There is an origin story there that I think is important to understand and to know, and that these are people who were worshiping other gods and engaging in the occult. And it's, it's important to know that history, right? right? We shouldn't right. be walking around 
participating in something that we don't understand. I, I think that's really important. That's a really good word. And Billy, as we said, you're the director of communications for PureFlix. Could you explain to people not only what is PureFlix, because people might not know, they're like, I know Netflix, I know Hulu, but what PureFlix Pure is, but also what are some movies or shows on there that might be helpful for parents to check out, especially this time of year around what we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So PureFlix is really this amazing streaming service. It's a faith and family friendly service. And that means that you don't have to worry about, you know, surprises. Now, there are things that are for adults on there. Mm -hmm. And there are things that are for kids on there. And you have to be discerning on those things because of the subject matter. But when I say that, there's no surprise that's going to make you as a Christian feel like you can't watch it, right? Mm. So everything on PureFlix is really family-centered and or centered on a faith-fueled mind and heart. And there are thousands of titles, movies, TV shows, and original series on PureFlix. And similar to Netflix, you, you subscribe to it. And you can actually get a free one-week trial, which is amazing, so you can try out the content. You know, your, your second question about what kinds of content, right now, this time of year, we actually have a campaign. It's called, you know, Evil's Last Days, and it's mm. looking at the end times. And we have a free end times theology guide that actually takes you through what is the rapture, what is the tribulation, you know, what is the evil that, that many believe we will see in the end times. And so you can download that over at offers.pureflix.com. But then we have the movies. We've got the old Left Behind series. We've got The Remaining, which is not a title you would watch with your kids, it's definitely <laughs> for adults. Um, and so, you, you know, there's certain titles, again, you know, that's one you're going to watch, and it's one you're going to look at. What would the rapture look like? How would mm. that unfold? And so The Remaining shows that. And we've got, we've got so much content like that, the Revelation Road series that um, takes you through the hypotheticals of what the end times might look like. You know, while we're here talking about evil, it's hard to talk about evil without considering the end of days and mm -hmm. what we see throughout Scripture and in Revelation. And so that's uh, just one of the many things, you know, with Christmas approaching, there's going to be tons of Christmas content. Um, again, content you can watch, you know, with the whole family that's and right. enjoy and not have, not have those surprises, right, the things you want to avoid in entertainment. That's really good. I encourage people to go check out Pure Flakes. With a couple minutes, a minute or two we have left, why is the end times important for us as Christians? And you touched on a little bit, but A, why is it important for us to consider and think about? And B, how can that be used as kind of a witnessing tool, as a way to reach other people with kind of these big spiritual topics? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. If you look out there, and I talk a lot about this in, in my book, Playing With Fire, when you look at Hollywood, Hollywood is spending more time than ever before on themes of the occult, on mm. ghosts and demons, and of course they're not presenting those things through a scriptural lens, right? But mm. they're presenting them, and audiences are going to see them, and that's why they're continuing to present them. And so at this bizarre time in our culture where more and more people are moving away from faith, at least nominally, you have more and more people interested in spiritual things. Mm. And so there's a real opening there. You know, let's say, let's say a movie comes out like The Conjuring. Okay, well, what are the themes that you saw in that movie, right? What did you take away from that? Did you know that actually there's an explanation for all these things in real life, right? That we can actually talk about that and explain that, that the events happening in our world right now, you know, of course, we don't know everything that's going on, and we don't know the dates and the hours, and we're not supposed to go out there and say that we know them. But these are all discussion points, moments from which we can springboard to have these conversations with people, uh, and they get us thinking deeper. There's a reason why 
people want this content because inherently in all of our hearts and all of our minds, whether we're believers or not, we do know there's something more. And we've had that, I think, thirst put in us to find that. Yeah. And, and people look for it sometimes in the wrong places, but that's, I think, uh, a opening for us as believers to say, hey, what do you think about this That's and to good. point people toward the truth? That's a good word. I'd encourage people to go check out pureflix.com. That's pureflix.com. Uh, Billy Hollowell is the director of communications for Pureflix, also the author of some books, the most recent Playing with Fire, a modern investigation into demons, exorcism, and ghosts. You can find out more about Billy at billyhollowell.com. That's billyhollowell.com. Billy, I really appreciate it, man. This was great. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, A lot of times on this show, uh, Aubrey and I spend time discussing difficult things in evangelicalism that we see in the church, and we feel like that's one of the... um, one of the roles of this show, one of the things that we can best do is to point the finger at the church and at ourselves going, we can do better at this. But that makes for difficult conversations like we had earlier in the hour where we talked about Peter Werner's article about what's tearing apart the evangelical church from the inside where he talks about it's our uh, we're just kind of embracing the ways of politics and of our culture. And uh, it no longer looks like Jesus and that we have to reclaim uh, the church of Jesus And so I'd encourage you to go give that a read. But but sometimes we need palate cleansers. Sometimes we just need to go, you know what? I need some good news, some encouraging news. This is the one that made me smile on Twitter this weekend. And not surprisingly, it was going all around to a lot of different people, uh, a lot of different places. And it was a CBS evening news story about a school that was having a lot of problems with uh, with kids fighting. Let's listen to it. Not many good news stories begin in such a bad news way. It happened last month here at Southwood High School in Shreveport, Louisiana. Plagued with violence. Over the course of three days, another fight. 23 students arrested for fighting. Massive police response. But strangely, there hasn't been another incident since perhaps in part because of this most unusual crisis intervention team. Nobody here has a degree in school counseling. No, no majors in criminal justice. No, no. Your qualifications are? Well, Dad, we decided the best people who can take care of our kids are who? For us. So Michael Lafitte started Dads on Duty. We're out doing what we do for our babies. A group of about 40 Southwood dads who now hang out at the school in shifts. Let's go. Today, any negative energy that enters the building has to run a gauntlet of good parenting. What's going on, buddy? You moving fast. I like that horse. I immediately felt a form of safety. We stopped fighting. People started going to class. How could that be? You ever heard of a look? A look? Dads have the power to do that? Yes. (laughs) Not many people know it, but yes. (laughs) Let's go, let's go. But it's not just the firm stares and stern warnings. Let's make it to class, my son. It's also the dad jokes. (laughs) They just make funny jokes like, oh, hey, your suit's untied, but it's really not untied. (laughs) They hate it. They're so embarrassed by it. (laughs) And it's that perfect mix of tough love and gentle ribbing that dads do so well that has helped transform this school. The school has really just been, like, happy, and you can feel it. Which is why the dads plan to keep coming to Southwood 
indefinitely. Because not everybody has the father figure, the father figure at home. Mm-hmm. Or a male, period, in their life. Like so that. just to be here makes a big difference. Do you think you stumbled onto something here? Absolutely. I absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. I have a good morning. They'd like to start chapters of Dads on Duty throughout Louisiana. What's up, baby boy? And hope to eventually take on the country. All right. Without a fight. <laughs> All right. Look, I don't know how that doesn't put a smile on your face, challenge you also if you're a dad out there and just give you hope. So let's recap what we heard there in that news report that has now been watched over 11 million times. This school was was just being um, inundated with kids fighting fights, fist fights. If you could go watch it, fist fights were just breaking out all over the school. They were having a, every day. Teachers couldn't stop. There, there was just the kind of the uh, the school was getting overrun. And these dads decided we're going to do something about this. And that's what I love first about this story. So often we shake our fists and go, what is the school going to do? What is the church going to do? What is this going to do? Who's going to take care of this? Instead, these dads said, listen, we're the dads. We're going to step in there and we are going to do something about it. And so this group of dads. Uh, decided we are going to step in and we're going to be, we're going to show up. We're going to show up at this particular school called Southwood High School. We're going to show up and we are going to be the solution. We're not going to wait for the school. We're not going to wait for other people to take care of it. These are our kids. And so we are going to get in there and they created this organization called Dads on Duty. And now They just show up and they stand in there, not as security guards, but as dads. They wave to the kids. The kids get to know them. They tell dad jokes. I love as one who uh, loves a great dad joke. They tell dad jokes to the kids and the kids roll their eyes and they just are teaching respect. They're teaching proper behavior. And uh, these kids, some of them even said, how can we get in fights when these dads are here? But they just stand out there and they just talk to the kids and they get to know them. And guess what it's doing? It's making a difference. It's making a difference in the lives of these students, in the uh, in the school, for these teachers. And there's so much to learn here. Can I just start here? Uh, I'll talk to all parents, but I'm a dad. Uh, and so let me talk to dads out there. What we learned from this news report is that dads matter. Being a good dad matters. Being in the life of your kids matters. Being in your being present matters. What are these dads doing at this school? Are they teaching? No, they're not. They're not doing anything other than being present. And it's transformed this school. If you ever think that dads don't matter, you're wrong. Dads matter. Now, they, as they said, there's a good percentage of kids in this school who don't have dads. So you know what these dads are acting as? They're acting as surrogate dads. They're stepping in and playing the father figure and encouraging these kids. I'm, I'm watching the video again, and they're, they're just walking around waving into the rooms. So dads, you matter. And because you matter, show up. You don't need to work and work so that your kids can have every great toy, but not be involved in your kids' lives. Be involved in your kids' lives. Be present. Go to their stuff. This doesn't, you don't need to take this on, although these dads here are trying to spread this throughout the country, but 
you don't need to be at your kid's school every day, but when your kid has a game, when your kid uh, has a has a uh, musical performance, show up, be at home for dinner as much as you can. I got a job that has meetings at night. I understand. I got one tonight. I understand there's times that you got to be out. But let your kids know that you love them, not by what you buy them or even the words that you say. Those things are important. But let your kids know that you love them simply by your presence. Be present. Dads matter. You matter. And don't farm off your parenting to other people. And then don't think that it's our, that our next generation's a lost cause. They're not a lost cause. In many ways, what we see happening, was happening at this school, is an indictment on the next generation of parents. It's not an indictment on these students. But then when the parents picked up their obligation and their opportunity, transformation happened. I love this story because these dads are doing it. And they challenge me as a dad to say, okay, where am I dropping the ball? Where am I present? Where am I not present? How do I live this out for my kids and the kids that are in my in my uh, kids' lives, their friends, uh, and other things. Be an encouragement. Be present more than anything else. Go to Twitter. You can find this anywhere. It was on CBS Evening News this past week. All about dads at this high school in Louisiana. There's a reason this story has been viewed over 11 million times. Because it's good. It's really good. All right. Thanks so much for joining us today. Join us tomorrow. From 4 until 6 p.m., you have been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.